This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Before we start the episode, two things. First, we are taking a break from posting new episodes in July, but we will be back in August with more faith-building content. Second, Still Rowing is celebrating its third birthday next month. Woohoo! Thanks for being a part of this journey with us and supporting this podcast. Kim and I put many hours into the production of this podcast, and we would love it if you would celebrate three years of Still Rowing by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Our goal is 150 ratings. Can you help us achieve that? This really does make it more visible to others who are looking for faith-building content. So if you've benefited from this podcast, please pause this episode and take a brief moment to rate and review. Thanks so much. Now on to the show. Lauren Lily White, or as everyone calls him, Moss, has lived in Southern Utah most of his life. He loves spending any free time with his wife and three kids, which usually consists of walks around the neighborhood or coaching one of many soccer teams. Lauren is a nutrition and sports management instructor at Utah Tech University and does extensive outside consulting. He has degrees in sports management, biology, and psychology. Lauren earned a graduate degree from a conservative evangelical Bible university where he was required to take several classes in Bible theology and history. He believes the best way to learn is by asking good questions, which is what he spends most of his time thinking about. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm your host, Tara McCausland, and welcome to my friend, Moss. Thank <laughs> Not you. Lauren, Moss. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I've known Moss for a long time and actually enlighten me. Why do you go by Moss? Um, so I've got two great parents and uh, seven siblings. So there was a bunch of us. And for some reason, my dad decided it was important that he give every single one of us a super weird nickname. And because we have kind of unique first names, um, the nicknames were even more unique and they just kind of stuck. And I think basically all my siblings and I still go by our nicknames. Really? Yeah, they, they just kind of stuck. Fascinating. I'm just curious, what are some of the other nicknames? Because Moss is, is peculiar. It's cool. Yeah. So my, my younger brother is Soup. And <laughs> I have another younger brother named Bean. I have a sister, Juge, and Furf, and Jay, kind of a normal one, uh, <laughs> Lou, and Weed. So yeah, there's, wow. there's lots of weird ones. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I finally asked that question here on this podcast interview. <laughs> <because Yeah. laughs> I've, I've wondered that for a long time. Well, as I said, I've known Moss for a while, and I'm just so grateful that you would be willing to come on and share your experience because he has done a great deal of study on his own. He's come to understand what it takes to find answers to hard questions and how we go about wrestling with faith and doubt. I feel like at some point in everyone's conversion, they're going to have to engage in that wrestle. Would you agree with that? I, I definitely think so. If people aren't having that wrestle, I think a lot of times it could be that they're not engaged enough because mm. you have to be thinking deeply to be deeply engaged. 
And anytime you think deeply about something, you're going to come up with, with questions and things that, that challenge you. Well, I agree. And I think it's in those deep questions that we will find deep conversion. Yes. We can do the work to find the answers. So, well, to start us off, you told us a little bit about the unique names, (laughs) nicknames of your family, but something that was also unique about the Lily White family was that apparently you had really great conversations about hard, complex topics, church history and other difficult subjects. Can you tell us about that? As far back as I can remember, my parents were pretty open about just about any question. And I had lots of older siblings that were teenagers by the time I was two years old that were at that age, they were starting to ask questions, but they, we moved around a lot. And the first house that I remember living in was uh, an old pioneer house in St. George that was owned by this lady that had just been moved to a rest home that I was kind of related to. Her name is Juanita Brooks. And she is a pretty prominent LDS historian that wrote the first big book on things like Mountain Meadow Massacre. And uh, next door to us was her son, my uncle. Right from the beginning, growing up in that house, we talked about things like Mountain Meadow Massacre and like polygamy and the saints being driven place to place to place and the fears the, the saints had. And those were just normal everyday conversations that we had around the dinner table at family home evening. And it was just pretty well known in my house that there were these things that I would come to find out later on, a lot of people didn't really know much about. And that was just a normal part of my life growing up. I remember later on when President Hinckley was the president of the church, the church was redoing the Mountain Meadow Massacre monument site just north of St. George. And my dad is a stonemason and they hired him to basically build the monument. And it was in the summer, I was out of school, and I was 11 or 12 years old, and he told me, hey, you're driving up there and back with me all summer to build this thing, Mm -hmm. so you can earn some money for something, I don't even remember what, but the entire way, driving back and forth every day for an entire summer, we would talk about things like the massacre, and we read Juanita's book, and uh, we talked about all these hard topics And it was just normal. I wasn't ever afraid to ask questions. I wasn't ever like worried that uh, he would look down on me if I had any uh, difficult questions. And I knew he studied and my mom studied. And if they didn't know something, they would try and figure it out. Hmm. I feel like that's where we need to go more in our homes and in the church that we need to get real comfortable talking about these hard things so that when we read something online or someone asks us these hard questions that I think part of what is challenging when it comes to these topics is that oftentimes we aren't familiar with them. So it's kind of like that double whammy of, oh, that's hard. And I didn't know about it. Why didn't I know about this thing? Right. And so I just feel like we, we do our families our children, a great service when we can just be very transparent about these hard things. 
I, I think so. And I think the, the church agrees with that because most of these hard, difficult topics, they're addressed now in the seminary manuals and the institute manuals. They didn't used to be there. When I was in high school, going to seminary, none of that stuff was ever covered. And it is now. And I think that is a great thing to have in there because now it won't feel like somebody is trying to hide it from you. When I talked with people, that's usually the number one issue they have. It's not that something bad happened. It's that they feel like somebody was trying to hide this stuff from them. Okay. Well, so moving forward, you were growing up again in the church, in a home where these discussions were being had. Uh, but you got to pre-mission age, and as a young man, you started wrestling with some of these hard topics to the point of actively trying to disprove the truthfulness of the gospel. So can you tell us a little bit about why that was, a little bit about that journey and how you approached finding answers? Yes. So um, just a little background. I had a good group of friends, all members of the church, all going on missions at about the same time. And I was about eight months younger than everybody else in my group. And so all of them, we, we graduated high school. They started getting their mission calls, leaving, taking off. And then I was the only one left. And um, I had a great job. I had a, a girlfriend at the time and I was going to school and I felt like, you know what? Things are going great. I really don't want to go on a mission. <laughs> My friends have been out long enough that they'll be home before I know it. And I just really don't want to go. I knew that it was a duty of uh, priesthood holders in the church to go on a mission. So the only reasonable way for me to get out of it was to figure out that the church wasn't true. Me being kind of the, the nerdy guy that I am, I decided, all right, well, I can do that. I <laughs> heard there is lots of kind of shady things in the church's history. I'm sure I can dig up a whole bunch more and I can prove that the church isn't true. Pretty naive of an 18, 19 year old, I, I'm sure, but <laughs> um, I decided that I would dig in that I would try and read every criticism of the church I could find, every uh, thing that purported to disprove the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith or whatever. Um, but I, I was a good student. I had taken lots of upper level classes and things like that. And I knew that I wanted to be intellectually honest. And so I decided, okay, I will do this. I'll take careful notes of every question, every criticism I can find but I'm also going to spend 50% of my time reading the rebuttals to these criticisms, reading the scriptures, reading what Joseph Smith actually said himself, what the, uh, the leaders of the church have said in general conference. And so I had a ton of free time and I spent a lot of time studying and I decided I would spend 50% of my time with the criticisms and 50% of my time uh, with the, the faithful perspectives. And I filled notebook after notebook after notebook with questions and notes and things like that. I still have those on my bookshelf. Mm -hmm. And as I continued to study, as I continued to look and research, I found that basically every criticism I could find I was able to eventually find answers to. But more importantly than that was the feelings that I had while I was studying. 
those feelings were feelings of peace and reassurance and even of accomplishment. And I kind of felt my heart changing to the point that I knew this was true and I knew it was something that I wanted to go out and share. Before long, I decided, okay, enough with this. I'm submitting my papers and it was all, all done from there. <laughs> you went into this with the intent to disprove the church, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what gave you the desire to give 50% of your time to the rebuttals and, and to the scriptures? Because often when we're trying to find gaps, we just want to settle into the criticism. Um, well, I think a lot of that was just uh, my parents had raised me to be an honest person and mm. I wanted to be honest to myself. And I had taken things like AP biology in high school and things like that. And I knew that good study required you to look at both sides of an argument. And I wanted to give equal weight to both sides of the argument. I had recently taken a philosophy class at college and I felt like, you know, these great philosophers from ancient times, they didn't just look at one biased side of an argument. They tried to look at all sides of it. And looking back now, years and years later, I didn't do a great job of it, but I did as good as I could as an 18-year-old. Hmm. Often what we bump up against when we're trying to find answers to these hard questions is that we spend too much time in one camp or the other. And, the, oh, and yeah. it really isn't an honest investigation. If we really want to find the truth, we have to be willing to approach it honestly, like you did. So again, so fascinating to me. And I appreciate that you did approach that with the desire to, to really come to the bottom of the truth. And as you said, you felt like not only did you find answers, but I, I think, as you said, more importantly, your heart was changing Yes, and that propelled you to serve a mission. So tell me, how did that experience going through that process of studying criticisms and faithful rebuttals, how did that impact your missionary experience? Um, well, it had a huge impact on my, my mission. Um, I served up in Seattle, Washington. And when I was assigned with my trainer, my trainer was a pretty green missionary himself. <laughs> he had only been out for four months and, uh, was very inexperienced, but he, uh, the first night I, that I got there, he said, hey, we've got this family, they're on date for baptism, we're going to go over, we just got a couple of lessons left to teach them, let's just go right over there, get you a great experience right off the bat. And so we show up and knock on the door, no answer. Like, oh, this is really weird. Knock on the door again. And the dad, the father of the family came to the door, didn't open the door, but yelled through it. Go away. We don't want to talk to you Mormons anymore. Mm. And so my companion was like, what's going on? You know, we can just talk at the doorstep right here, but let us know what's going on. And come to find out they had been given a, a book full of criticisms, basically, about the church and especially about uh, violence in the church. And they had read the first chapter of the book that night as a family. And the first chapter 
went into quite a bit of detail on the Mountain Meadow Massacre. And it accused the church of all sorts of things, accused Brigham Young of all sorts of things. And my companion had never heard of this before. And as I mentioned, I grew up in the house of the lady that wrote the book on the Mountain Meadow Massacre. My dad built the monument <laughs> at Mountain Meadow Massacre. And I had spent a summer with him learning all there is to know about it. And so me, my first night in the mission, first time talking to anyone, spent about two and a half hours talking to them about what happened mm -hmm. and about how scared the people were and about uh, how people make bad decisions, but that doesn't mean that Joseph Smith isn't a prophet and things like that. And they eventually ended up letting us in and we gave them the rest of the lessons and they ended up joining the church and are great faithful members today. And that kind of showed me that there was a need for people to share experiences that knew about some of the darker stuff, that knew about some of the warts and things like that. Right. And um, a few months later, I was called to serve in the office, the mission office, and I spent the vast majority of the rest of my mission in the mission office and became kind of a resource by the assignment of my first mission president that other missionaries in the mission could call if they had a question that investigators had that they didn't have an answer to they didn't have the resources to study and it was my job to study to get them materials and things like that and pass that along to them to give to their investigators so for 18 months of my mission that's what i did i researched every topic imaginable and tried to write up things that i could send to the missionaries that they could share with the investigators and i read even more anti-books than i had before my mission and researched all sorts of things and started emailing back and forth different church historians and BYU professors to get answers and started building networks with several of those people. And oh. it, they were a, a great resource to me that I could then pass on to, to the missionaries in my mission. Clearly it wasn't coincidence right. that you ended up on that doorstep that night that family needed you and they yeah. needed to hear what you had studied. And I think you're hundred percent, right. It's experiences like that, that help us recognize there is a need for us as members of the church to do our due diligence and to look at the complex things that are in our history and in our doctrine and not shy away from the warts as you said, because in a previous episode with a fellow named Renee Crywalt, he said that we can benefit from looking at the opposing arguments if we are in a good place emotionally. Right. So if, if you're questioning whether or not you're in a good place to start looking at some of these arguments that are against the church, then I might suggest that you go back and listen to that episode with Renee Crywalt. Uh, and I think he gives some good advice as to what will create the best environment so that that kind of investigation doesn't actually become a detriment to your testimony. Because if you're not in a good place, it's not, <laughs> it may not be a good thing for you. But overall, I have found for myself 
that the more that I learn, the more I can help my fellow Latter-day Saints and those who are outside of the church who are asking honest questions. Right. So you talked about this experience that you had, but as you move beyond your mission, I'm curious, can you tell us about other experiences or one particular experience you've had in helping someone else navigate hard questions? Um, yeah. So I, when I came back from my mission, I knew this was something that I wanted to continue with. And I got a job as a research associate with an LDS organization. And I was able to full-time study and benefit from listening to other scholars and starting to get involved in that world a little bit, going to conferences and symposiums and things like that. And um, once I started doing that, bishops in my stake would refer people to me quite often because that wasn't their area of expertise, you know, they, and they had other things on their plate that they needed to deal with. And there was one person, they were a person just about my age that uh, maybe just a little bit ahead of me in the progression. They had just had a couple of kids and were just starting out in their career and they had started to read a little bit about things like how the Book of Mormon was translated and about how that differed quite a bit from what he had been taught growing up, like in primary and with some of the pictures in the gospel art kit and things like that. And he came to me and he's like, you know, I, I served a mission. I went out and taught people about this and I know I was teaching them wrong. And I wonder what other things are being hidden out there. What else wasn't I told? And he started looking into a lot of things and started finding a lot of things that he never knew before. And at that point, I hadn't, I knew the vast majority of the things he was talking about and uh, was able to point out a few of the things that weren't true that he was finding. And he and I ended up having a dialogue on this for years. I probably went on for three to four years and he would send me questions over and we'd sit down and talk about them. And finally, it just got to the point that he decided I need to make a decision. I need to keep looking for problems or I need to decide that I'm 100% in on this. And that it doesn't really matter whether or not Joseph Smith had his face in a hat or used a stone or whatever. One conversation I remember with him in particular was talking to him about a calling he had been recently given by his bishop. And he had been called to teach the eight-year-olds in primary, the kids that either were just about to get baptized or had just gotten baptized. And I asked him, what types of things are you teaching these eight-year-olds? And if you had got this calling three or four years ago, what types of things would you be teaching them? And I think it finally dawned on him that although he hadn't been taught a lot of this stuff, it wasn't because people were trying to hide it. It was because they were just regular people like him that they hadn't been taught it either. And that at some point, people need to take responsibility to study on their own. And that he decided, okay, from now on, I'm going to stop looking for hidden things 
and I'm just going to study the gospel. He is doing great now and has a great testimony and has helped hundreds and hundreds of people since then in all sorts of callings. I think that is something that is stuck with me, that we can't blame things on other people, that we just need to take responsibility and study when we have questions of our own. I think something that'll always help us with that is having good mentors, having good friends, good people that you can talk to stuff with. People that maybe are a little bit further down the path than you are. Um, like I said, when I was on my mission, I had to start emailing BYU professors and church historians because I didn't know who else to ask. But finding other people that are asking hard questions and being able to talk with them openly and honestly will just help everyone. And I think that's bearing one another's burdens, exactly what we covenant to do. I really like what you said about taking responsibility for our own learning and essentially for our own conversion, right? And I, I think that's really what the church is trying to get us to do when we made the shift from three to two hour church and they mm -hmm. said, okay, now you go home and you talk about the gospel in your home. We are giving you your hour back, not just exactly. so you can go take a longer nap, but so that you can really start digging into the gospel as a family and hopefully as individuals, hopefully you're studying outside of that hour mm -hmm. so that you can prepare to teach your children and have these meaty discussions. I do think that the church is creating more resources and tools so that we can become better educated. And what I see and hear from President Nelson is it's up to you whether or not you will be converted. You dig in and you find those answers. And so that's, I really appreciate that experience. And I love to hear that fellow is doing well and now going out and helping others. And I, and I yeah. see that pattern that if we're willing to do the work, then we can become great helps to our fellow men and continue to be good missionaries. But tell us about a time when in your adulthood, you were facing significant challenges that had an effect on your faith and your testimony. Yeah, there's been a couple of experiences that I've had with that, that I kind of took a, a different type of faith than I had, I guess, worked on before. Um, the first one was I, after I had left my, my research job, I had a different job. It was the job that I went to college for and I absolutely loved and uh, was making a good living at, but it also happened to be in the middle of the, of the last great recession. Just 12 days after my daughter was born, my second child was born, um, I showed up to work early in the morning and was let go. And I was absolutely devastated. It was really hard to find any job uh, at that time, especially one in the, the particular field I was in. And I went for months unemployed and I had a <laughs> two week old baby. Um, my wife got a severe infection and ended up being in the hospital for quite a while. And things were just not going good at all. And uh, luckily, I had an amazing bishop at the time. Um, and he brought my wife and I in and met with us and helped us. And more than anything, just sat and listened and talked to us and helped us through those struggles. 
I was not questioning Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon or the, the prophet or anything like that, but I was struggling, and my bishop at the time helped me through that, and that really strengthened my testimony in the priesthood leadership and the organization of the church and design communities that we're trying to build. Um, a few years later, my older sister, probably the, the sister I was the very closest to, uh, was killed in an ATV accident. And it was right on spring break. She had a, a whole bunch of kids ages two years old to 14 years old. And it devastated her little family and my bigger family completely. And at that time, nobody in my ward knew what was going on because my sister wasn't in the ward. She wasn't even in the stake. I felt completely alone. And I didn't have a big group of friends that I was, was close with at the time. I didn't have any support like that besides my wife. And she was hurting just as bad as I was. And it, it took a long time. I think there are several members of my family that are still struggling with that, with the, the lack of support that they felt. Um, finally, when I reached out and asked for some help again with my bishop, my bishop had kind of a, a unique approach. He said, well, I'd like you to talk about it on Easter Sunday in sacrament meeting. <laughs> and so he assigned me to be the, the Easter Sunday speaker. <laughs> And it was a great experience. And from that, I ended up actually hearing from several other members of the ward that had lost siblings or parents or things like that. And we started meeting and talking with each other and helping each other. And since then, it's like I said, been a few years since then. And I have a great group of friends that now whenever anybody is struggling with anything, we get together, we support, and we bear each other's burdens. And both of those were completely heart-wrenching experiences that made me question God, made me question my faith, even though it wasn't an intellectual thing like all the other questions had been. But the thing that really helped me through it was good priesthood leaders and good other member friends that helped me. I feel like oftentimes when we feel that lack of support, we, we start to pull away. What helped you hold on through those really dark periods? So for me, it was thinking back to the experiences I had, that I knew the church isn't perfect, that people aren't perfect, and we are here to help and support each other. They would probably help if they knew. And if I was a more outgoing person and things like that, I know I would want to help somebody, but I just didn't know how to do it. Hmm. And I knew that these are things that we're told to do, but are really hard to do. And I think finally it was my wife that dragged me in to talk to the bishop and said, no, he needs to know about this so he can help you. He can't help you if he doesn't know. We'll certainly have different experiences that will try our faith in different ways, because as you had said, uh, up to that point, it was more of an intellectual doubt that you were wrestling with, if you were wrestling with questions, but this was a, a different kind of test 
that yeah. was pulling on your heartstrings in a, in a way that you hadn't experienced. It's important for us to recognize and remember that this life is meant to tug at our heartstrings and that if we have not yet had those experiences, our own Gethsemane, as it's sometimes termed, that not to anticipate it because then we might just get depressed, <laughs> but not to be surprised when things hit us and are hard. As we often say, we talk on this podcast to people that have been through really hard things. And one of the common denominators of how they feel sustained through those things is being among the saints and be comforted by their, their fellow ward members. And so for those of you who are listening, who may be going through a really hard time, I hope that you will hear Moss and recognize that a part of keeping our covenant to mourn with those that mourn is being willing to share our pain. Yeah. So that others can comfort us. You've just had all these experiences <laughs> wrestling with hard questions, helping others with hard questions, and you've learned a lot through that experience. What recommendations would you give to those who are currently engaging in that wrestle, facing complexity and paradox? What would you suggest that they do to find answers? Well, I, I think I could probably go off on this for a long time. Um, there's a whole lot of things I've learned mainly by messing up with them. Um, <laughs> but um, hopefully if I share a few of them, not everybody else will have to make the same mistakes I did. Um, probably the very first one and the biggest one I have is to be okay with a little bit of cognitive dissonance that not everything has to fit together perfectly in your mind all the time. There, it's okay to have a few contradictory opinions in your mind. It, and that's okay. And hopefully over time, you'll resolve some of those. And hopefully you won't have that cognitive dissonance forever. But it's okay to have a little bit. And when you notice that, slow down. I have seen lots and lots of people that when they see something troubling in church history or when they disagree with a position the church takes or when they disagree with a doctrine or something like that, they immediately start looking to jump ship. They immediately decide, all right, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to, to be a member of the church anymore. But really, if you can just slow down and not make rash emotional decisions and spend a little time studying the topic and looking at it and looking at different perspectives with it. Um, one of the, the things that helped me the most with this is figuring out once I had all of my questions written down in my notebooks and things like that, that basically every single question I ever asked somebody else, some other prominent member of the church had asked that exact same question and had written an Enzyme article about it mm. or published something in BYU studies on it or written an entire book addressing that topic. And basically every question I've come to since then is a question that is being debated or has been debated 100 years ago or 50 years ago by these intellectual giants that publish things in peer-reviewed journals and get critiqued by their colleagues, 
and the answers are there. And somebody else had that question way before I did, and they did all the legwork to find the great answers. And so if we can just slow down a little bit and become a good connoisseur of good scholarship. Things like podcasts, like this one right now, are opening stuff up to so many people. It used to be so much more difficult to hear from these great minds in the church that do have answers to difficult questions. But things like podcasts, things like these journal articles and magazine articles are so much more available than they've ever been before. I was just reading a book on uh, discourses by Orson Pratt, and I pulled that up on my computer in about five minutes. I, I'm sure somebody would have walked 100 miles in the 1800s to, to just get a book like that, and I have access to it at my fingertips. We have access to all of this stuff. If we'll just slow down a little bit, not make rash decisions, and know that somebody's probably asked the same question you have, and you can find an answer to it. A couple other things that really helped me, um, going back to what we talked about at the start a little bit, is be intentional about your intellectual honesty. Don't look for excuses. Look at both sides of every argument. And for me, that meant spending 50% of my time looking at questions and 50% of my time looking at faithful scholarship in the scriptures, reading general conference talks, giving equal weight to the faith-promoting stuff as you do the things that you're, you're questioning and making sure that you're not just looking at one side of an argument. Um, it's easy in modern society with social media and things like that and a variety of news sources to get stuck in your one little echo chamber and only hear things that reinforce one point of view. And that always causes more problems. Don't be afraid to look at other points of view because that's how you will find the truth is looking at both sides of an argument and weighing them equally against each other. The other things that have really stood out to me is knowing that the members of the church, the leaders of the church, even the authors of the scriptures are all humans. The scriptures especially are a record of people messing up over and over and over <laughs> again, and God still loving them, and God still working with them, and God still trying to help them. And it's okay if Nephi messed up. It's okay if Joseph Smith messed up. It's even okay if President Nelson messed up because they're learning, they're growing, they're getting better too. And hopefully with this giant thousands of pages of scripture, we can learn from their mistakes and not have to make the same mistakes so that we can be more wise than they have been, like it says in the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. because that's what it is. It's a history of people messing up and God still loving them. So obviously we, we've really been talking a lot about the, the intellectual side of this. How have you brought the spirit into that process? The bishop that's helped me so much with this is Brad Matheson, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you could probably mm -hmm. guess. Yeah. <laughs> when I first went in to meet with Brother Matheson, Bishop Matheson, I was deep in studying psychology and philosophy. 
And I was also at the time getting a degree in biology and hardcore into science. And basically, if I couldn't prove it logically, it didn't make sense. If it didn't work with the scientific method, it didn't matter to me. And at the time, Christy and I were actually struggling because she was the complete opposite. She was one of the people that fill the spirit and that's enough. And Brad sat down and talked with us and said, it's okay to gain knowledge in both ways. And in fact, you will be a better person if you do learn to gain knowledge in both ways. It's okay to scientifically prove things and to gain knowledge that way. It's okay to prove things logically, but it's also okay to trust your feelings. It's okay to fill the witness of the spirit in your life. God can bring truth to us in each of these ways. And he will talk to you in different ways. And he can lead you to all truth. And for me, that has been an ongoing struggle. I'm mm -hmm. not an emotional, touchy-feely person. I don't like it when somebody gets up and bears their testimony and cries the whole time. That, <laughs> that doesn't speak to me. Right. But it does speak to some people. And that's something I struggle with. But it that is a legitimate form or a legitimate way to gain knowledge. And when I've studied philosophers, when I've looked at the, the way they define epistemology and the way they approach it, there is more than one way to get at truth. There is more than one way to, to come to a knowledge of, of your Redeemer. And I think the scriptures are designed to show us that. I, I think this goes again back to that intellectual honesty thing. I do always try and start every one of my study sessions, and I set apart specific time every day, specific place every day to have my study sessions. And I start every single one of those with a prayer. And I keep detailed notes. I believe in being a record-keeping people like we've been taught. And I think things like that do bring the spirit. And I always, always, always try and spend at least half of my time with the words of prophets. And when I do that, when I spend time in the Book of Mormon, especially, I feel the spirit, even if I'm jumping back and forth between the Book of Mormon and some critical scholarship as well. I took a philosophy class, like I said, early on. And my philosophy teacher, he's since passed on, but he said something that has always stuck with me. He said, pondering is the art of asking good questions. Hmm. And so when you're told to search, ponder, and pray, when you're told to ponder on the scriptures, that means asking good questions. And when you ask good questions, when you ponder, that's when the spirit can speak to you. And it's it's a little bit scary to ask questions sometimes. If they're not the typical Sunday school seminary questions, it's scary because you may not know the answer. But that's when, when the Spirit can speak to us. I, I believe that's what Moroni's promise is telling us when he tells us to ponder on these things in our heart, to remember how merciful God has been from the children of Adam down to the present day. He's telling us to ponder, to think on those things, to ask the hard questions, and then the Holy Ghost can testify to us about the truth of all things. Well, do you have any other 
suggestions that you'd like to share with people who are engaging in the wrestle? I do have one other, and this one isn't mine. Um, this one comes from an awesome scholar up at BYU named John W. Welch. And years and years and years ago, he wrote a big long paper called Towards Becoming a Gospel Scholar. And I read this early on in my mission and just absolutely loved everything about his essay. Um, but one of the things that really helped me more than anything else that he said in there is to learn how to be a good connoisseur of books and articles and talks. And he went through this and said, look, there is a hundred different LDS publishers out there and a million different Christian publishers out there and uh, 10 million different religious publishers. And you need to know how to evaluate things before you read the entire book or before you read the entire article. And so learning about what type of stuff does Deseret Book publish? And how is that different than the stuff published by signature books? And how is that different than the stuff published by, by Common Consent Press? And how is that different from stuff published by Oxford University Press? And this, I think, gets to a lot of that finding a good mentor. Because when I was a 19, 20-year-old on my mission, I didn't know the difference between covenant communications and BYU studies and religious studies. I didn't know the differences between those things. And now I have my bookshelves divided up by publishers and authors and things like that. And I do have hundreds and hundreds of books. And I know what I'm getting before I even open the book based mm -hmm. on who published it, who the author is, what their interests are, what their biases are. And I know I'm going to come into it with my own biases, but I also know okay, if I read a book by so-and-so, I should probably read a book by this person instead, or in addition to that, to get the other perspective. And that gets back to that 50-50 thing, that trying to spend 50% of your time in each area. It's easy to get bogged down reading the take of one author and just think, oh, that's it, they've proved everything wrong, I've lost my testimony or whatever. And that's just one person. And you need to be able to quickly say, all right, well, this is this person, this is this author, let me find the opposite view. And that by John W. Welch, the entire essay is amazing, but that really helped me get through a lot of stuff quickly and get a broad perspective on LDS scholarship. The, the fact that you mentioned that we really need to recognize that anything that we read, whether it's church produced or not, has its own bias. Mm -hmm. That's human nature. We, we approach every subject with our own perspective, bias, worldview, and that's going to color how things come out in an article or a book. If we're willing to always approach information with that kind of attitude of what What's this person's agenda? Where yeah. are they coming from? It can just help us get a more of a bird's eye view <laughs> rather than just being sucked into only that perspective. In the culture that we're living in, as we have discussed, we can tend to be pulled to one side or another and forget that there is, there's another view there, mm -hmm. a rebuttal. And, and we can get boxed into 
beliefs and ideologies that are not going to serve us. And that can deal with politics or religion or (laughs) you name it. The vast majority of the people that I've worked with, they get all of their questions from one source and they don't even think to look in another area and to look to see if, hey, has anybody else addressed this topic? Knowing going into a topic or into a book or a podcast or whatever that, hey, this is so-and-so that is writing this or that is publishing this or whatever, and they have these biases, makes a huge difference. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Great counsel. And I think that there's a lot to be said for being able to, as you said, be a connoisseur of all the literature that's out there, both good and bad. You just have to learn how to process information a little bit better (laughs) than we do. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Moss. I've really enjoyed this. And I'm sure once again, that our listeners will have learned a great deal from your experience. But before I let you go, got to ask you this final question. Why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? Um, For me, it's pretty simple. It's because after extensive study, I feel like it's true. I believe it's true with all my heart. I still have questions. I still have concerns, but I've had the witness of the Holy Ghost. I have the intellectual evidence in my brain to back it up. And I feel like this is the best place. I don't believe the church is perfect. I believe our Savior Jesus Christ is perfect. And I believe this is his institution on this earth today. And I believe that us working together to bear each other's burdens is the best way for us to get closest to him. And I personally have seen the fruits of the gospel in my life and have seen what it does for me and who it helps me become. And I still have a long ways to go, but I feel like there isn't anywhere else better for me to be, to get closer to my savior and to develop attributes like he has. And that is why I'm still rowing along and still still trying to do my best. Awesome, love it. Thank you so much, Moss. Appreciate your, your testimony. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at Church of Jesus Christ SR Podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.